For a complete version of NJ.com's special investigation, Death and Dysfunction, visit death.nj.com. Death and Dysfunction. How New Jersey fails the dead, betrays the living, and is a national disgrace. Story written by Stephen Sterling and S.P. Sullivan. Voiceover by S.P. Sullivan. Story editing by Christopher Baxter. Production by Andrew Zuckerman. You're dead in New Jersey. You're a teenager hit by a train and the circumstances are murky. You're an infant who died suddenly in the middle of the night. You're a middle-aged wife found covered in stab wounds on your bedroom floor. This is a state of 9 million people with a $35 billion annual budget. Surely, someone will get to the bottom of it. But what if the cops at the scene moved key evidence in their haste? What if the pathologist who sliced you open had a troubled past? What if you were buried before they had all the facts? What if New Jersey's entire system for investigating deaths was a national disgrace? An 18-month NJ Advance Media investigation found serious failure at nearly every level of New Jersey's patchwork system of medical examiner offices. The obscure agencies charged with one of the most fundamental tasks, figuring out how somebody died and why. The probe revealed families left to grieve without answers or closure, innocent people sent to jail, and murders still unsolved. Ask pathologists across the country, and they'll tell you about New Jersey. They'll tell you it's so bad, slowly decomposing bodies sometimes clog storage rooms of morgues by the dozens, stacked two to a gurney, awaiting examination or burial for months. Ask New Jersey's last two top medical examiners, and they'll tell you they resigned in protest over a lack of money and power to fix things. Governors and lawmakers for nearly four decades have largely ignored the system's failures and the tragic consequences and failed to demand answers. Ask funeral directors, and they'll tell you about body parts gone missing and mangled corpses. Data shows family wait an average of four months to learn from the state's busiest offices how their loved ones died. That's twice the national standard, and that's if the dead get examined at all. Experts estimate an effective system could be run in New Jersey for about $27 million a year. That's $3 per resident or just 11 cents more than what they pay per year right now. Put another way, a vastly improved system could be maintained for less than the cost of a gallon of milk per person. The newest state medical examiner, Andrew Falzone, has won praise for trying to right the ship since he was confirmed to the post last year. The state has hired more pathologists and support staff, improved turnaround times for autopsies, and brought in an outside monitor to study the system and recommend changes. Yet past studies and recommendations still collect dust, as do the many reform bills that have been introduced in the state legislature since 2003, all of them going nowhere. Why? Because you're dead in New Jersey, and the dead don't vote. Chapter 2. Lost in the Shadows Medical examiners work in the shadows, cutting open bodies on sterile tables in cold examination rooms few would care to visit. To have business at their 10 offices in New Jersey means you have suffered an unimaginable loss, or are investigating an unspeakable crime. One of the problems we have with medical examiner systems is that the legislators tend to think of us as handling the dead, said Victor Whedon, who was named acting state medical examiner in 2007, only to resign in protest two years and five months later. But everything we do is for the living, he said. Part doctor and part detective, a forensic pathologist's job is to determine the cause and manner of death. Not all cases come before a medical examiner's office, but state law requires referrals in a wide array of circumstances, including murders, suicides, inmate deaths, workplace accidents, and sudden infant deaths. But in New Jersey, how well someone's death is investigated depends on where they die. 
While the state medical examiner, by law, has general supervision of every pathologist in New Jersey, the powers are limited outside the confines of the two state-run offices in the North and South, which handle death investigations in seven counties. Five counties maintain their own offices, and the remaining nine are split between three county-run regional offices. Using the state's Open Public Records Act, NJ Advanced Media has obtained and analyzed more than 20 years of state medical examiner data. Among the findings, from 1996 to 2016, New Jersey medical examiners rejected two-thirds of the roughly 420,000 cases referred to them, 20 to 30 percent more than states with similar statewide systems. Since 2006, the average time to complete an investigation has increased about 350 percent, from 20 days to 89 days, with one office averaging 127 days in 2016. While medical examiners in the state offices are conducting more autopsies in recent years, largely because of the opioid crisis, they have 20% fewer employees than a decade ago. As part of its investigation, NJ Advanced Media interviewed attorneys, doctors, pathologists, law enforcement officials, current and former prosecutors, and those most affected by the system's failures, grieving families of loved ones who died under suspicious circumstances. In addition, through internal sources at medical examiner offices and using the state's public records law, NJ Advance Media obtained and examined hundreds of pages of state and county documents, court files, legislative records, and autopsy and investigative reports detailing inquiries into specific deaths. What emerged was a stark portrait of a system with a well-earned national reputation for dysfunction. Anyone who's been anywhere near New Jersey knows how bad the system is, said Vincent DeMeo, a retired pathologist and nationally recognized expert on death investigations. I've been doing it for 50 years, and I knew about it for 50 years, he said. Inadequate oversight allows problem employees to remain in botched investigations to go undetected, critics say. Death investigations involving police are vulnerable to conflicts of interest. And perhaps most troubling, experts worry suspicious child deaths aren't getting the scrutiny they deserve. The variability in autopsies we were seeing was alarming, said Anthony Durso, a psychologist who served for 15 years on the state's Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board, an obscure but important child abuse watchdog. And we're doing this work from the sidelines, on a limited number of cases. It could be the tip of the iceberg, he said. All the while, bodies pile up as overworked pathologists, many of them freelancers, scramble to keep pace. Some days, in our office, the corridor looks like part of Grand Central Station, with bodies lying horizontally on tables, and other staff moving deftly between the tables, said Abraham Phillip, a former pathologist in the state's northern office in Newark. Some of the bodies have been there so long, they decompose, he said. The state attorney general's office, which oversees the office of the state medical examiner, has for years said little about the problems. In November, months after being informed of this investigation, and for the first time publicly, Officials revealed steps being taken to improve the system. Falzone, who was confirmed in November 2016, acknowledged challenges facing understaffed offices, but said most pathologists do solid work despite limited resources. He disputed complaints of mangled bodies and delays releasing them for burial, saying most autopsies are finished within 24 hours. The medical examiner said he has increased starting salaries to attract better talent, a tall order given the state's tarnished reputation and the national shortage of trained pathologists. The office has also invested to improve its facilities, some of which haven't been renovated in more than a decade, he said. And, in September, the Attorney General's office hired former State Attorney General and New Jersey Supreme Court Justice Peter Venero at $350 an hour to undertake a systemic review of the medical examiner's office. 
At least two similar reviews have been done in the past, with few results. Change is difficult, and it takes money, Falzone said. In an ideal world, I think having a few regional offices, all under the umbrella of the state, would probably work well. It's a matter of funding. Chapter 3. Withering on the Vine New Jersey's northern and southern regional medical examiner's offices are among the busiest in the state. By many standards, they have also been among the worst, the data shows. The northern office lost accreditation with the National Association of Medical Examiners in 2011 and failed an on-site inspection two years later, reports show. The southern office never earned accreditation, and both offices still lack the seal of approval. The report detailing the inspection noted a lack of clear written policies for accepting cases, long delays in closing cases, substandard transport vehicles, and foul odors in the building. NJ Advanced Media's investigation found that while the state has taken steps to fix these problems, it is far to go. In 2016, the completion time for accepted cases was 110 days in the north and 127 in the south, about twice the 60-day accreditation standard, according to an analysis of state data. For cases requiring autopsies, the lag was even greater, 138 days and 153 days, respectively. By comparison, the Bergen County office, which serves the most populous county in the state, had a completion time of 32 days in 2015. The 2016 data input by the county contained errors. The Attorney General's office declined NJ Advance Media's request to visit an office and observe an autopsy, citing concerns over privacy and ongoing investigations. Philip, who worked as a pathologist in the northern office until December 2016, called conditions miserable. He said freelance doctors the office often relied upon were required to pay for their own vaccinations or medical attention if they suffered a needle stick. Cold storage rooms for the dead were so overloaded, he said, gurneys often held two bodies at a time. Falzone acknowledged overcrowding but disputed the claim that the office was doubling up on gurneys. A spokesman for his office said that they were in the process of changing the system for per diem doctors to provide health insurance to cover job-related injuries. At a legislative hearing in April, two Democratic state lawmakers from Hudson County, which is served by the Northern Office, confronted Attorney General Christopher Perino with even more graphic complaints. Senator Sandra Cunningham said she received reports the office ran out of space for new bodies and had them standing up in corners or whatever. Senator Brian Stack said police chiefs and prosecutors complained the contractors hired to remove bodies often showed up late in beat-up vehicles. When they finally did show up, Stack said, they were rough when handling the bodies. In response to NJ Advance Media's inquiry, Falzone said the Northern Office had made several improvements in the past year, including upgrading its storage freezers and ventilation systems. The overcrowding mentioned by lawmakers was due to an influx of unclaimed bodies, Falzone said. By law, the county of residence must arrange burial. It was taking us a long time to work with the counties to get the bodies buried, he said. State officials now report the number of unclaimed bodies stored at the northern office has fallen from a high of 117 in September to 45 in December. Falzone also said the state was no longer doing business with Community Funeral Home, a Passaic company that transported bodies for the northern office in Essex and Hudson counties for more than a decade after complaints over the years. The company's owner, Joseph Fantasia, said he had sought to end the contract over late payment and other issues. He said he received no complaints about his employees' behavior and that the state had inspected his vehicles and raised no concerns. In addition, 
Records show Fantasia entered into a consent agreement with the State Board of Mortuary Science in July, surrendering his funeral director's license and agreeing to pay more than $70,000 to resolve allegations his company misused funds from customers who prepaid for funeral services. Under the agreement, Fantasia admitted no wrongdoing and is still allowed to perform removals. Fantasia said the state should transport bodies itself instead of relying on contractors who might have to drive to a scene several counties away at a moment's notice. It's a flawed system, he said. They have their own issues. Chapter 4. A Murder Case That Won't Die Valentino Ionetti fasted, praying to the Lord to get me the heck out of there, he said. Accused of murdering his wife Pamela, he tallied the days awaiting trial from his Sussex County jail cell. The case against him seemed open and shut, court records show. When first responders arrived at his Stanhope home on December 8, 2009, they discovered Pamela, 57, covered in knife wounds. Valentino, then 59, told authorities he found her that way, the knife at her side. There was nobody else in the house, no signs of forced entry, no footprints in the fresh snow. He was the only suspect. Police arrested him at gunpoint, Ionetti said. They questioned him for 22 hours, he said. He recalled he told them over and over and over and over and a whole bunch more overs. He had been asleep on the couch just before he found her. It's either the butler or the husband, Ionetti recalled being told by one of the officers. You don't have a butler. Ionetti, who was interviewed by NJ Advance Media in May, admitted he had a troubled marriage. And, left alone in the small room after hours of questioning, he prayed. Father, did I do this? He remembers quietly saying to himself. Father, why? To Ionetti, it was a private moment between himself and a higher power. To police... It was a confession caught on tape. A pathologist with the Sussex County Medical Examiner's Office, Junaid Sheikh, found Pamela had 47 sharp force wounds and ruled her death a homicide. Sussex County closed its office in 2010, contracting with Morris County for medical examiner services. Sheikh, now the medical examiner in Union County, declined to discuss the case. But for Steve Inslee, a public defender with decades of experience, things didn't add up. Assigned to represent Ionetti, Inslee hired a second pathologist, Charles Wetley, to re-examine the case. Wetley determined most of Pamela Ionetti's knife marks appeared to be hesitation wounds, superficial cuts suggesting she had stabbed herself. He also noted the woman had enough oxycodone in her system, 373 milligrams, to kill her. She had long taken the pills for chronic pain and suffered from depression, records show. A forensic toxicologist, also hired by the public defender, found no signs she had been force-fed them, reports show. Those findings pointed to a different explanation for Pamela's death. Suicide. In August 2013, 44 months after Valentino Ionetti was arrested at gunpoint, Inslee went to Sussex County prosecutors, who brought the findings to their medical examiner. Sheikh declined to change his ruling, but prosecutors were already having second thoughts about the case. Gregory Muller, the first assistant prosecutor in Sussex County, said they hired a third medical examiner who told them Pamela Ionetti likely committed suicide. They dropped the charges the next day. Valentino Ionetti left the Sussex County Jail August 14, 2013, a free man. But he said the three years, eight months, and seven days ruined him. He lost his home and his job, he said, 
His son died from illness while he was locked up, and his relationship with his remaining two children, already strained before his wife's death, only worsened. He said he has unsuccessfully fought to have Pamela's manner of death changed. Shake, the medical examiner, has refused to budge. While Ionetti is no longer a suspect, the courts have refused to dismiss the case with prejudice. Prosecutors say they dropped the charges because they didn't think they could prove them beyond a reasonable doubt, but stopped short of declaring Ionetti innocent. Technically, prosecutors could refile charges at any time. If it was in fact a homicide, there's no plausible other suspect, said Muller, the prosecutor. I've been doing this for about 22 years. It's the first case I've had, or that I'm aware of, that falls into this category. Although it's technically open, it's not something we're actively pursuing, he said. Yet it hangs over Valentino Ionetti. When he runs into acquaintances, they're shocked to see him. He said they often ask, How'd you get out of jail so soon after killing your wife? I got a black mark against me that I just can't get rid of for something I haven't done, Ionetti said. Chapter 5 a creaking, cracking system. The same system that might have kept an innocent man in jail for nearly four years may also be allowing criminals to walk free, experts say. Even worse, they say, some of the victims are children. For years, the New Jersey Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board urged state officials to improve the medical examiner system. Board members have sent more than 125 letters to medical examiners over the past two decades challenging findings in pediatric cases. In the 2009 report, for example, the board cited three cases in which the medical examiner determined cause and manner of death before an investigation was finished. In another, the report said, no autopsy was done because of parental objection, and no x-rays were taken because the radiology department was busy. And in yet another, an infant was found to have old rib fractures, the father had a history of previous infant death, and there was a surviving child in the home, yet no report was made to Child Protection Services. The current medico-legal death investigation system in New Jersey lacks clear and uniform structure and oversight, often resulting in substandard practices, the report said. A few complaints over the years were addressed, said Durso, the former board chairman. Most were ignored. Ernest Leva, a top pediatrician at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and the board's former director, said he was at wit's end in 2013. He wrote an urgent letter to Governor Chris Christie, begging him to give the state medical examiner more authority over county offices, which Leva said were bungling too many cases. Children continued to be murdered in our state without a proper post-mortem evaluation, Leva wrote to the governor, punctuating his message by writing the word murder in capital letters each time. I ask, I plead with you to address this issue. Leva and Durso were replaced on the board when they were up for reappointment the following year. A spokesman for the governor's office described their replacements as routine, and Falzone, who has since joined the board, said he couldn't speak to what happened before his appointment. The findings of medical professionals are supposed to be a check against political meddling in death investigations. But pathologists say the state office isn't immune from outside influence. Many experts say having the medical examiner under the attorney general, the state's top law enforcement officer, unnecessarily complicates investigations into deaths in police custody. It's a complete conflict of interest, said DeMeo, the retired pathologist in Texas, adding the office should be under the control of a university hospital or state health department. A review of more than 50 cases from 2013 to 2015 in which a death occurred in the custody of law enforcement 
shows members of the departments involved in the death sometimes attend autopsies. And in these cases, among the most fraught a medical examiner encounters, a staff member from the medical examiner's office was present at the scene of the death less than half the time, relying instead on descriptions of the incident compiled by law enforcement. Peter Asseltine, a spokesman for the State Division of Criminal Justice, which oversees investigations involving state or county officers, said investigators from the medical examiner's office were present in all of its cases involving an individual pronounced dead at the scene. The only time someone from the medical examiner's office wasn't present, he said, was when the suspect died after being rushed to a hospital for treatment. In those cases, it wasn't necessary for the medical examiner to visit the scene because it had been meticulously documented and the body wasn't present, Asseltine said. Independent oversight is also crucial when people die in jail or prison. While state laws and regulations require autopsies for inmates who die in custody, there is an exception for cases in which the suspected cause of death is a known condition. That exception has caused controversy in cases involving allegations of abuse and neglect behind bars. Carlos Mejia Bonilla had been detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement at the Hudson County Jail for 10 weeks. On June 8, 2017, he was taken to Jersey City Medical Center, suffering severe abdominal pain. Mejia Bonilla, 44, died at the hospital two days later. Immigration advocates and the man's family claimed he wasn't receiving proper medical care at the jail and were outraged to learn no autopsy was conducted. State officials later said the man's death was due to gastrointestinal hemorrhage stemming from chronic alcoholism, which qualified as a known condition. Eddie Lelevois, an assistant medical examiner for the state's northern office, made the ruling based on an external viewing, authorities said. Falzone, the state medical examiner, said he could not discuss specific cases, but added medical examiners decide whether to conduct an autopsy based on the information available to them at the time. If we were made aware that there was anything controversial, we would have opted to do a full autopsy, he said. Doing a full autopsy gives you answers and can save you time down the line, so it's not a matter of trying to get out of doing work. Lee Lavoie's work has come under scrutiny in the past. In 1995, he resigned as a medical examiner for New York City after it was exposed he mistakenly ruled a young boy's death a homicide, making the boy's father the chief suspect in a murder investigation. He later realized the boy had died of natural causes and changed his ruling, but did not amend the death certificate for nearly a year, according to media reports. More recently, Lee Lavoie was criticized for ruling the death of John Sheridan a suicide. On September 28, 2014, Sheridan, the CEO of Cooper Health System in Camden, and his wife Joyce were found dead in their burning bedroom. The ruling implicated John Sheridan in an apparent murder-suicide. After the family challenged the medical examiner's work, Falzone changed Sheridan's manner of death to undetermined. Chapter 6. Questions Keep a Family's Life on Pause Absent answers, Stephen Valiente keeps busy with projects. There's the meditation space in the backyard, the full-size volleyball court, the koi pond, but walking the property, it's hard not to be drawn to the centerpiece, a 15-foot-tall T carved from two giant logs. Tiffany was Stephen's youngest daughter and his inspiration. He works from the moment he gets up until the moment he goes to bed, said his daughter and Tiffany's sister, Jessica Valiente Valerie. We each have our own ways of coping. This is his. 
Tiffany Valiente died July 12, 2015. She was struck by an NJ Transit train about five miles from her May's Landing home. Local media reported her death as a suicide before investigators interviewed any immediate family members, and the story stuck. According to records obtained by NJ Advance Media, here's what the medical examiner and NJ Transit police concluded. Tiffany left a party, dropped her phone at the end of her driveway, walked four miles barefoot to the tracks, and then walked another mile down the tracks and jumped in front of an oncoming train in the darkness. A bloodhound traced the path authorities say Tiffany walked, but only after two heavy rainstorms, her family claims in court documents. Not long after, Tiffany's shoes and headband were found in the grass well off the path the bloodhound laid out. The investigation wasn't reopened as a result of the belongings being found, records show. For her family, too many doors were left open. They say they don't have the answers needed to grieve. They can't move past something they don't understand. We're just kind of acting like she's still away, you know, at college, Valiente Valerie said. We're waiting for her to come home because it hasn't really clicked that this is real because we really don't know what happened that night to her. A report by an investigator with the state's southern office indicates Tiffany's uncle, Michael Valiente, a state police trooper, identified her body. The uncle passed along secondhand information about his niece to investigators, according to the report, including that she had been having disagreements with her mother and that her friends said she had cut herself. He later said the report was inaccurate, records show. The employee running the train, a student engineer, told police he saw what appeared to be a woman crouch near the tracks. He blew the horn and activated the brakes but couldn't stop in time. The engineer training him was speaking with a conductor and did not see the impact, records show. Tiffany's body was mangled by the train, and, according to her case file, it's unclear if the medical examiner checked for marks consistent with cutting. Her parents say they were not interviewed before the death certificate was issued, and her phone and social media accounts were not checked. There was no rape kit, though it's unclear whether her body was in a condition to perform one, and investigators' reports make no mention of psychological or medical checks for risk factors. It is entirely possible Tiffany committed suicide. Experts say she had risk factors, such as dealing with her sexual identity as a teenager. But the more complete picture of Tiffany's life isn't in the pages of her death investigation. It has been compiled by family members and attorneys involved in litigation. The family filed a civil suit in July 2016 challenging the medical examiner's ruling and asserting she was kidnapped and murdered. A 20-page report compiled by an expert hired by the family provides a damning portrait of alleged lapses by investigators. While there are several plausible explanations for Miss Valiente's tragic death, suicide is not one of them, wrote Louise Hausman, who worked as an investigator for Atlantic County's medical examiner office for more than 20 years before retiring. In the report, Hausman notes the state medical examiner never visited the scene of her death. In his interview, Falzone, the state medical examiner, again said he could not comment on specific cases. But he said if a pathologist feels they're comfortable making a diagnosis, there may not be a need to do a rape kit or collect fingernail clippings. We do that on a case-by-case basis, he said. He acknowledged the difficulty in investigating potential suicides, saying it tends to be the specific manner of death that causes the most heartache. For many reasons, it's hard for families to come to terms with that, Falzone said. Sometimes insurance policies don't pay on suicides. Sometimes it's against religious beliefs, he said. But I will certainly review any cases that are brought to my attention to see if there's anything else that needs to be done. For the Valientes, 
Each unanswered question in the medical examiner's report provides another obstacle to coming to terms with their daughter's death. In October, the state office wrote to the Valiente family, telling them it was again reviewing her case. Chapter 7. Butchers in the Bowels By all accounts, the state medical examiner's office had been doomed to obscurity for decades. And the state's recent record of being unable to keep people in its top post speaks to how much the dysfunction has affected his reputation. Farouk Preswala held the position until 2003 when he resigned, calling the situation impossible. The position sat vacant until Victor Whedon took over in 2007, but he too resigned two and a half years later for the same reasons. If you have a bad reputation, that means good people will not apply, said Zhang Su Hua, who worked as an assistant medical examiner in New Jersey and is temporarily serving as acting medical examiner in Bergen County. When bad people apply, you get more problems along the way. The Southern Office, which opened in 2005 and serves Atlantic, Cape May, and Cumberland counties, often went months or years with nobody formally in charge, though the Attorney General's office hired Carolyn Rivercomb to run it in February of last year. In 2009, Charles Siebert resigned as the temporary head of the office after it came to light he had left a similar post in Florida amid complaints about his work there. Siebert could not be reached for comment, and state authorities said they were not aware of any issues with the quality of his autopsies in New Jersey. He now works as a pathologist for the Gloucester County office. Another pathologist, Hisham Hashish, joined the office in 2011, only to resign three years later when the Attorney General's office learned he had surrendered his medical license in New Mexico shortly before taking the job. The revelation prompted a review of 44 murder cases for which Hashish had conducted the autopsies. He could not be reached for comment. How could such problems persist? Pathologists say the system slowly became the forgotten stepchild of state government. Over years, the medical examiner's office stopped showing up in the Department of Law and Public Safety's annual reports. Legislative efforts to reform the system stalled. The effort to build statewide offices all but stopped. And families across New Jersey were left to suffer the consequences. If somebody wants to kill someone, all you would need to do is go in their hospital room and inject something into their IV, said Presswalla, who was state medical examiner for seven years. The only way those kinds of cases are caught is because someone is making an observation or ordering testing or investigating further. In New Jersey, so little of that kind of work is going on or even possible, he said. Even when autopsies are performed, funeral directors complain of long delays and mangled corpses. It's nothing more than a meat house at this point, said Marius Lombardi, a former administrator at the state's northern office who owns Lombardi Funeral Home in Caldwell. We have a hard time just getting them to pick up the phone sometimes. We have situations where they'll open the scalp haphazardly during an autopsy or not dissect the arteries properly, and we have to tell families we can't do a viewing on this body. They go off the wall. Critics of New Jersey's system also say best practices prescribed by state law and industry standards are falling by the wayside as medical examiner offices struggle to keep up with caseloads. Klaus Speth, who worked in New Jersey as a medical examiner for two decades, said he routinely attended scenes during his time as a medical examiner before being embroiled in a bitter feud with then-state medical examiner Robert Good that ended with Speth's conviction for evidence tampering. The charges were later expunged, court records show. Speth called on-site investigations a lost art. 
Medical examiners are becoming butchers in the bowels of morgues and not going to scenes, Beth said. Who wants to spend their day with a knife in a room doing three, four, five, six autopsies a day, never even seeing whether the sun is shining? It just doesn't attract people into the system, he said. The 1967 New Jersey Medical Examiner Act requires a medical examiner or their deputy or assistant to personally attend the scene of a suspicious death. Yet over five years working as an assistant medical examiner at the Northern Regional Office, Abraham Phillips said he conducted more than a thousand autopsies, but visited just two crime scenes. The workload at his office simply didn't allow it to be part of the job, he said. Falzone, the state medical examiner, said the law predates the establishment of an intermediary position known as medico-legal death investigator. They are empowered to serve as the office's boots on the ground in most cases. They are also trained in suspicious death investigation techniques and typically have backgrounds in fields such as forensic anthropology, nursing, or emergency medical services, he said. Despite playing a crucial role in the system, often deciding if a body should be accepted for an investigation or released, or writing a report from the scene that will factor significantly into a medical examiner's final ruling, salaries for these investigators for years started as low as $40,000. The state, in an effort to reduce turnover, recently bumped that amount to $45,000, Falzone said. By comparison, the salary for trained pathologists was recently raised from $145,000 to $165,000. Still, an analysis of state financial data shows more autopsies are being done with fewer resources. Over the past decade, state funding for the medical examiner's office, which also receives money from the counties it serves, has been slashed by 27%. Data shows medical examiners there are conducting 28% more autopsies than they did a decade ago, with about 20% less staff. It comes at a time when medical examiner services are at a premium, the opioid crisis has led to a crush of bodies needing autopsies, straining already taxed systems nationwide. More than 1,900 people in New Jersey died due to opioids in 2016, which would account for 42% of all autopsies. Not everyone is getting an autopsy now that should, said Brian Peterson, president of the National Association of Medical Examiners and the chief medical examiner in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. The more shortcuts you take and the more autopsies that are not done, the more you're going to miss. The association recommends a medical examiner not conduct more than the equivalent of 250 autopsies in a calendar year. Under its guidelines, between three and five external viewings count as a single autopsy. NJ Advanced Media's analysis of state data shows some medical examiners blow past that number. In 2016, for example, Gloucester County Medical Examiner Gerald Feigen, who also works as a contract pathologist for the state office, personally conducted 360 autopsies, and 338 external viewings. Under the national guidelines, that equates to 444 autopsies. That was far more than the second most prolific pathologist, Burlington County Medical Examiner Ian Hood. He performed the equivalent of 272 autopsies that year, according to the data. Feigen did not return calls seeking comment. A spokesperson for Gloucester County, Deborah Salito, said in an email Feigen had performed his job with the utmost of professionalism for the past 19 years. She said about 80% of the office's caseload was suspected drug overdoses, which do not require months of inquiry. She also said there had never been a complaint about any of the medical examiner's rulings. Yet concerns over Feigen's practices have been raised in high-profile cases on a number of occasions, most recently in the death of three-year-old Brendan Criado in Camden County and Feigen resigned from his previous post as a medical examiner in Boston in 1998 
after review indicated he made errors in two prominent cases, records show. Occasionally, the mistakes have been glaring. In December 2015, Feigen's office responded to a fatal car crash in Winslow Township. Susan Faust, 56, was on her way home from work when her car skidded off the road and hit a utility pole. The accident was so severe, it mangled Faust's body and severed her hand. Two days later, family and friends returned to the scene to set up a roadside memorial. That's when a neighbor made an awful discovery. She was saying, Go away! Go away! Go away! recalled Justin Faust, Susan's son. So I looked down, and lo and behold, she's actually stepping on my mom's fingers. The hand was visible in photos taken by an investigator at the scene. Feigen's office declined comment, but Faust's daughter, Brittany Esposito, said no one had explained to the family why it wasn't recovered. It was somebody's job, she said, and somebody didn't do it. Chapter 8. The 40-Year Crisis In 1979, the State Commission of Investigation released a report detailing a series of failures in sudden death investigations. It may as well have been written yesterday. The SCI, which probes public corruption and government dysfunction, wrote the state medical examiner was handicapped by insufficient staff and laboratory resources at his Newark headquarters, and by a lack of full compliance with the statute by county medical examiners. The report recommended centralizing operations at the state level and giving the top medical examiner more authority to step in on any investigation for reasons of incompetence or noncompliance with the law. For decades, little was done. Former Attorney General Peter Harvey said he commissioned an internal study of the system in 2003 that recommended much of the same, creating state-run regional offices, uniform guidelines, and higher qualification requirements for pathologists. Legislators have followed suit by giving the problem passing attention, introducing bills in nearly every legislative session since. None ever made it past committee. In the end, opposition comes down to a typical New Jersey tug-of-war over power. County and local officials are loath to give up control of anything, including managing the dead, Harvey said. Extra layers of oversight and bureaucracy only create problems, they say. And the governor's office in Trenton is already so powerful, local officials cling to the political clout they can keep. In 2005, Senator Joseph Vitale, a Democrat from Middlesex County, sponsored a bill to change the system. But it drew opposition from the freeholders in his own county, who objected to handing their medical examiner's office over to the state just a year after the considerable expense of building a new home for it. The Middlesex office has since taken on medical examiner duties for two other counties, Monmouth and Mercer, who chose to regionalize rather than hand over power to the struggling state offices. Whatever maneuvering or poor oversight that's gone on for years has left New Jersey with a disaster of a system. And like so many things in the state, if it's going to be fixed, it's likely going to take some political capital from one person. I can tell you this, if a governor ever got interested in this, a governor could probably achieve it, said Harvey, the former attorney general. A lot of legislators are not going to get in the way of a governor who decides this is a priority. The counties are not going to get in the way of a governor either, because the governor controls the budget. Story written by Stephen Sterling and S.P. Sullivan. Voiceover by S.P. Sullivan. Story editing by Christopher Baxter. Production by Andrew Zuckerman. For a complete version of NJ.com's special investigation, Death and Dysfunction, visit death.nj.com.